You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Seth, when did you first look through a telescope? Well, I don't know. I guess I was eight or nine years old, so it was in the last century. And when did you want to become a scientist? Was there a moment when you wanted to become a scientist? Do you remember? No, I was always interested in science, actually, from the earliest school days. If they talked about science, I was interested. Does it seem like a long time ago? Well, it does because it is. Meaning decades. Uh, That's one unit you could use, yes. Well, when you look over your impressive tally of years, do you feel like you've changed much since then, since the first time you looked in a telescope or when you remember wanting to be a scientist, which sounds like since you were very small? Well, obviously, if you look in the mirror, you see differences, and they're not always pleasant. But uh, inside, you don't change all that much, in fact. And Oscar Wilde made a comment on this once. He said, the trouble with being old was not that you were old. It was that you were still young. And uh, I know what he's talking about. So you feel like you've stayed the same pretty much? Since uh, since my late teenage years, I don't notice a whole lot of difference in my uh, view of the world. Perhaps more sophisticated jokes? I hope so, but who knows? <laughs> Imagine that you have a photo album and you're flipping back through the course of your life. Let's see, 1999, 1985. It might go back 20, 45, or 80-plus years. My first bike. Oh, me riding in the Bicentennial Parade. Think of all that's happened since then. (laughs) My first guitar. Oh, and there's my Led Zeppelin dorm poster. That's okay, they're still cool. Wait, was I sporting a mullet? It may seem like a long stretch of time and that you changed quite a bit since the day, whenever that was. But what do we humans know about time? I mean, our lifespans are measured in decades. And you can think about all that can happen in a few decades. But decades are nothing. Imagine millennia, or better, millions and millions of years, hundreds of millions of years. Truth is, it's hard. Our minds have trouble with deep time. I don't remember much before that day, that second Saturday in June of 1978, when I got my first Star Wars action figure, Darth Vader with the telescoping lightsaber. That's when my life began. But before that, it's all pretty fuzzy. And yet, if you could watch the Earth from the day of its creation to now on the mother of all fast-forward machines... You'd see that human existence on this planet is a small, infinitely tiny blip. In fact, if you imagine the history of the planet being one day, humans have been around only for the last five seconds. It's hard to comprehend what was taking place during all that time we weren't here when evolution was doing things. Most of it took place on lengths of time that are far beyond human experience. I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. It's Life Back Then on Big Picture Science. Now, we're talking about things like cockroaches. These are really beautifully finely tuned brains, extremely complex. They don't have so many cells as we have, but the number of circuits that are in some parts of the brain are comparable with our own, and they are very, very good at learning stuff. Yes, the cockroach. And believe it or not, some do hiss. Okay, just the sound of it may give you a shudder, but neuroscientist Nicholas Straussfeld has a lot of respect for this six-legged critter even thinks it might be conscious. And they've always seemed to know when I've turned on the light in the garage if that's a sign of being self-aware. At any rate, cockroaches are a great example of what nature can engineer over really long periods of time. Has the cockroach been around for a long time? Oh, yeah, 300 million years or so. So the cockroach has taken advantage of deep time to perfect itself. 300 million years of deep time. Well, it's true that cockroaches are pretty smart for what they can do, and they live everywhere. Yep. 
Well, just consider the reproductive habits of the cockroach. Hey, I like the shine on your back plate. You come to this pile of rotting garbage often? Well, maybe we don't have to look at those mating habits too closely. No, but let's consider them in general. Say the average cockroach reproduces four times a year. So if we go back three months, we come to the previous generation of cockroaches. And then we go back another three generations. Now we're back a year. But cockroaches weren't so different a year ago. But let's keep going back in time. We have to go back more than a billion generations to get to that first cockroach. Hey, I like what seems to be an emerging shiny backplate. Do you come to this pile of rotting trilobites often? Four times a year, 300 million years. That means there have been more than a billion generations of cockroach. And that's a lot of time for evolution to improve a species. If there's been that much time, why can't they talk? Why can't cockroaches talk? (laughs) Because I don't have vocal cords. The name of the game is survival, not talking. But look at what the cockroach can do. A cockroach normally won't wave its antennae at a light source. It'll run away from a light source. But what you can do is you can tether this thing to a a platform and then provide it with an odor cue, a little point source of odor. And the animal will then extend its antenna towards the odor source. And then you can match the odor source with a light, a little light that switches on when the odor is presented. And you pair these two stimuli, the odor stimulus and the light stimulus. And after two or three trials, you switch off the odor stimulus, but you leave the light stimulus going, and it'll wave its antennae towards the light stimulus. That's a nice example of associative learning. Is that really a symbol of intelligence, or is that some sort of hardwired behavior that might not take a whole lot of circuitry? Um, It might not take a lot of circuitry, that's true. But when you consider then all the other behaviors that it can perform, which are similarly adaptive, then the circuitry mounts up. So if we drop the bomb, the cockroaches will still be here. The idea is how many changes can accumulate over time. I mean, there have been a hundred generations of automobiles, but imagine if cars had had a billion generations to get better. My new car can fly, go invisible, and make waffles. Can evolution really do that? Yes, it can. The problem is we're wired to understand time on a really short scale, not deep time. Okay, but let's imagine we could travel back to life back then, whenever that is or or was. Well, there's been a lot of back then. We'd need a really far back machine. What would be your first stop? Well, if you're interested in life, I'd start off with a bang, with a Cambrian explosion. And the best evidence of that is in the Burgess Shale, the celebrated fossil find in the Canadian Rockies. These are remarkably well-preserved fossils of small animals, arthropods mostly, including not only their hard outsides, but their soft insides. And they represent the major types or phyla of animals that are known today. And these fossils are a snapshot of animal life 505 million years ago. The Burgess Shale animals are among the first complex animal life that we see on the planet. Lorna O'Brien is an evolutionary biologist at the University of Toronto, and she's worked with fossils of the Burgess Shale, most recently a filter-feeding animal called... Cyphus actum gregarium. Cyphus actum. Lorna, this is a creature that comes from the Burgess Shale, so that makes it, what, 500, 600 million years old? It's around 505 million years old. Okay, the Burgess Shale, that's just a, a, a fossil bed somewhere, what, in the Canadian Rockies, right? That's correct. It's located in Yoho National Park. And, and, and <laughs> I mean, when I think of fossilized creatures, particularly those that lived in the ocean, and I think most of these did, what are they doing up in the Canadian Rockies? So because they were put in place so long ago, so 500 million years ago, in the deep marine, uh, so in the deep seas of the time, they were actually uplifted since then. So as the Canadian Rockies have been formed, these rocks were pushed upwards, and that's how we have to go climbing high in the mountains to find them today. I see. Okay, so uh, that part of Canada has changed substantially. Uh, How are these things found? I mean, how does anybody find fossilized life from 500 million years ago in the Canadian Rockies? Well, there's some really nice stories about this. The actual deposit was found by Charles Walcott over 100 years ago, and it is said that he was riding through the Rockies with his wife and stopped to get off his horse to clear some debris from the path and actually turned up some of these fossils. And he was a paleontologist himself for the Canadian Geological Survey. So he passed the information along and actually did the main excavations of the site. The Cambrian explosion, I mean, it sounds mildly destructive. (laughs) (laughs) What was the Cambrian explosion? 
we use the Cambrian explosion in terms of the first appearance of complex life. And this appears in the fossil record to happen really fast. And we find it all over the world. But in reality, it is probably more to do with the fact that these fossils, these animals are actually getting preserved as fossils. So prior to that, these animals could have been around, but there weren't the right pathways for them to get preserved as fossils. So there's a bit of a selection effect here. You just happen to find this bed of well-preserved fossils and you say, wow, if we look underneath this bed of fossils, we don't see any animals like this. So it looks like suddenly they appear on the scene, but it might have taken, what, tens of millions of years? Probably. So there were other animals around before that that we know of. So we have some trace fossil evidence, so not direct evidence of the animals themselves, but direct evidence of their living activity there. So that gave us an indication that there was something. And you can find small bits of pieces of animals in other deposits, but not to the same exceptional preservation that you find at the Bridges Shale. So let's talk a little bit about Cyphosactum, because uh, to begin with, what does this thing look like? Uh, I, I looked at a picture on the web, and it looked like a tulip. That's exactly, <laughs> that's exactly what it looks like. So if you think of a tulip flower that's been compressed, so these fossils are preserved as 2D compressions, it pretty much looks like that, but it is an animal, and it has a long stalk and a bulbous calyx at the top of the animal. Well, you better tell me what that is. So that is the main living area of the animal. So enclosed within that is its stomach and a filter feeding apparatus that's completely enclosed within a sheath. So it's it's pretty odd in terms of filter feeding animals. And are there any descendants of this animal today that we can point to? Not that we can point to. It's been really hard to try and figure out the biological affinities of this animal. And that's probably due to its lifestyle. So animals that are attached to the seafloor and have a filter feeding lifestyle generally tend to all have a very similar body shape. Is there any particular set of these or subset of these that you can point to and say, you know, those are actually in our line of descendant, that, that those are our ancestors, if you will? Well, we have some that are early chordates, so probably the closest in, in terms of human ancestry, but incredibly distant in the past. And these are actually preserving animals that were probably the earliest fish ancestors or something like that, which eventually would have developed into the vertebrates and the human lineage would have come from that. When you say chordates, it sounds to me like they have some sort of backbone. That's correct. So there is some evidence that they have, um, they've started to develop a backbone and there are the muscle attachments or the muscle segments that you would expect with that kind of morphology. It's pretty impressive to me, Lorna, that, you know, 500 million years after these very simple creatures, a few inches tall, sitting there filtering their their dinner out of the ocean, (laughs) that, you know, that sort of creature after 500 million years of evolutionary change, produces the kind of stuff I see at the local zoo. Mm-hmm. Uh, but do, do you have any problem with that? Does that seem, you know, perfectly understandable? Is 500 million years long enough to do all that? Oh, absolutely. And the kind of diversity that we get today does stem from the diversity that we had back at the Cambrian, which was actually a pretty high diversity. So it's not surprising that we see the array of body forms and animal types that we see today. I see. So is there some reason that this happened 500 million years ago? Or is that just, well, it happened. It had to happen sometime. It did happen. Otherwise, we wouldn't be talking about it. And it was 500 million years ago. Or, or was there something that was going on with the Earth, with the climate system, with the position of the continents, something that precipitated, as it were, the, the Cambrian explosion? Yeah, so many theories have been put forward as to what actually triggered the Cambrian explosion. Some people would argue that it was shifting climates, so coming out of major glaciations or some major event like that that actually triggered it. Other people would argue that it was more behavioral, so with increased predation, animals needed to increase their defense, which causes the predators to have to increase the way they're actually trying to feed and forage. So there are certain things like that. It could also be ecological, so just the opening of new eco-space. So perhaps with increasing oxygen levels, it allowed animals to get bigger and to diversify a bit better. Okay, so finally then, Lorna, does the Cambrian explosion make you optimistic or pessimistic that complex life might exist elsewhere? Is this going to be a general phenomenon of biology if there's a lot of biology out there? 
I think it shows that you can have a huge diversity of life, even at any time period and given different circumstances. So I would be hopeful that maybe somewhere out there you could find something similar. Lorna O'Brien, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you, Seth. Lorna O'Brien is an evolutionary biologist at the University of Toronto. Up next, the really far back machine takes us to a place where the eyes first had it. It's life back then. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Well, to get a good sense of life back then and deep time, that requires us to transport ourselves to a back then that was millions and millions of years ago. And that way, we can get a feel for evolution doing its thing. Our really far back machine helps. Having brought us to the Cambrian explosion 500 million years ago. Now let's take off, push back in time. Hold it, hold it. We don't want to go too far from the Cambrian era. Oh. I mean, a few years back, if we can make a jump like that. Well, okay, how small? 520 million years ago? No, a little bit further back. Uh, 540 million years ago? That'll do. Okay, well, that brings us to the early Cambrian era. When an important physical feature makes its appearance in the fossil record, a trilobite. Now, this is an animal that looks like a large stone bug. Yeah, they were typically the size of a hamburger, although less tasty. Some were smaller, (laughs) some were larger. But all with a feature that some people refer to as the portals to the soul. I can see clearly now the rain is gone. These ocean-dwelling animals could see their obstacles, too. Rocks, their local bivalve neighbors, because they had eyes. And trilobite fossils provide our earliest evidence of their emergence. This is what Professor of Ophthalmology Ivan Schwab says. But we're talking primitive eyes, right? They were primitive, but I wouldn't say much more primitive. These were pretty good eyes at that time. The reason we know they existed then is because they fossilized. There were hard parts Uh, Really, they were bits of stone, calcite. Uh, That was a mineral of calcium, which allowed us to see the eye and its lenses. It had to go back much earlier, though, because the eye was pretty sophisticated at that time. All right. So I've heard it said that, you know, there are some animals today that have not the kind of camera eyes that we have, you know, with a lens in the front and some sort of a light-sensitive device in the back. We call it a retina, I suppose. But they had just sort of eye spots. They could only sort of sense, you know, that it was light or that it was dark, that kind of thing. I mean, that sounds like it might be a very primitive form of eye going way back. The Right you are. Uh, that eye spot could have gone back as far as 600 to 1,000 million years ago or a billion years ago. And that's probably how it started. I see. Well, is there a straight line, as it were, from those early eye spots to the kind of eyes we find today? Or have the eyes maybe been invented by evolution more than once? There's hardly ever a straight line in evolution. And yes, eyes have been invented many times, maybe as many as 40 or more. My goodness. Well, that sounds like, uh, you know, uh, nature found a lot of cases in which having some sensitivity to light was a good idea. The sensory modalities from uh, smelling to seeing to hearing, uh, all the sensory input was very important to the development of life, uh, the 
carnivory and predation, that is the, the attacking of animals and the, the prey preventing that attack, uh, it was an arms race. And that, that really helped push life along, really helped life evolve. Okay, so so eyes were essential. Uh, I can see that if you're a predator, it probably does help to have eyes. Uh, does it help a lot more to have two eyes so you get that kind of stereo vision? Good point. Stereo vision is important for depth perception. You can have depth perception without stereo vision with just one eye, but it's much better if you have two. You get the 3D quality that you see in, oh, I don't know, uh, um, through like 3D movies uh, we saw with... Um, with Avatar, sure. Okay, so so there's survival value in having two eyes instead of one. Um, what about three eyes? I don't see a lot of creatures with three eyes. It would seem to me that if you had an extra eye, maybe you could put it in the back of your head and you'd see predators coming at you from behind. I mean, sounds good. Well, Seth, actually there are animals with three eyes. One of the best animals in the Cambrian, which was 543 million years ago, uh, to about 500 million years ago, an animal called Opabinia, which is fossilized, actually impressions are fossilized, it had five eyes. And spiders today uh, have six or eight eyes. So there are animals with more than two eyes. Uh, two seems to be the most common number, but there are plenty of animals with more than just two eyes. Well, you know, the, the eye being the, this, this eye that we have as humans... You know, it's a pretty complex thing, and as a consequence, creationists and proponents of intelligent design often say that the eye is a premier example of what they call irreducible complexity, that it just couldn't have evolved through random mutation because if you take away one of its many parts, it just doesn't function as an eye. I mean, that sounds naively like a fairly compelling argument. Well, Seth, it isn't, uh, because actually many animals function quite well with just part of an eye. And one of the best examples of that very point is a shrimp that lives at uh, around the vents at 25,000 feet below sea level where the continental um, plates come together and there are volcanoes at that site. Briefly, this shrimp has just a strip of retina on its back, two strips, in fact, for two eyes. But it wasn't always so. In its larval form, this very same shrimp lives in much uh, shallower waters and has eyes that look like ordinary shrimp eyes. And as it goes through metamorphosis, as it changes to be an adult and sinks to the bottom to uh, be around these vents, it loses all of its eye except the strip of retinas. So it's really less than half an eye and is perfectly functionable for that animal. It really is less than half an eye. So, in, indeed, I mean, our complex eyes could easily have a, have a, well, easily could have been evolved from less complex eyes. There's, there's no problem there. You don't have to start with a complete eye. No. In fact, there are good examples of all forms, all steps from an eye spot to an eye cup to an eye cup with a lens to an eye cup with a lens and a cornea and so on until you form a complete eye. Investigators have calculated on mathematical models that it eyes could form in as little as a half a million years based on the amount of genetic change that is averaged in a species. Now, maybe it wasn't that quick. Maybe it took a million years. The hard part humans have, hard part anybody, any animal has, is grasping the span of time of the 3.75 billion years that life has been on Earth. We just can't wrap our heads around it. <laughs> well, finally, Ivan, if eyes are so important to us, I mean, if a third of our brain goes to processing visual information, why do so many people have such poor eyesight? I mean, myopia, astigmatism, I'm just categorizing my own problems. But, you know, a lot of people have these difficulties. H how did that happen? Well, Seth, that is an interesting and very hot question in the research world right now. We know that perhaps 100 to 150 years ago, nearsightedness was a rather rare commodity. In other words, this is a phenomenon of more recent lifestyle. Many think it's because people are devoting so much time to close work, like reading. Others think it may be caused by certain concentrations of uh, wavelength of light, like red. Others think it may have a strong genetic component, and that component is beginning to exhibit itself. And maybe all of these play a role. But the, the, the problems with our 
current visual system uh, are probably a result of modern society in ways we don't completely understand yet. My goodness. I I wouldn't have thought that the eyesight of our, you know, uh, I don't know, cave-dwelling forebears would have been much different than our own. They just wouldn't have been able to go to the ophthalmologist. Uh, well, that's a good point. There, there weren't ophthalmologists then, but remember, if you didn't see well in the uh, ancient past, in, in 50,000 years ago, you probably wouldn't survive in a tribal society, at least not very long. You have to be able to hunt. You have to be able to uh, manage yourself in the niche that you're in. And that means you have to have pretty good vision. So that may be part of the explanation. My goodness. Well, Ivan Schwab, I want to thank you so much for uh, talking with me today. Glad to talk to you anytime. It's a pleasure. You can see Professor of Ophthalmology Ivan Schwab at the University of California in Davis. Okay, now we're moving from deep time, from 543 million years ago and the fossil evidence of the first eye, ahead 300 million years. And to get an idea of how long that stretch of time is... Well, you could go to the moon and back two billion times in a jet plane. That's a lot of roasted peanuts. And that brings us to 240 million years ago. A really popular stop because no trip through time's historical record would really be complete without a visit to those superstars of the Triassic, Jurassic, and Cretaceous periods, our favorite outsized bipedal and quadruped lizards with tiny brains in 175 million years on the planet, the dinosaurs. All the time that dinos roam the planet, either delicately chewing plants or tearing each other limb from limb, some of these animals didn't change much at all. 240 million years to 65 million years ago, well, that adds up to 175 million years for possible evolutionary modification. And we're just fine the way we are. Thank you. (laughs) These guys have attitude. They need some curating, and I know just the man. I'm Donald Henderson, and I'm curator of dinosaurs at the Royal Tyrrell Museum in Drumheller, Alberta. And yet, the creature Donald Henderson has most recently discovered, you'd think by looking at it, would be a dinosaur but it's a mosasaur, a giant swimming lizard that lived 75 million years ago. So does a dinosaur curator have trouble imagining deep time? Not really. Maybe it's because I started off in geology, and so I was exposed to you know, ideas of how we determine the ages of rocks and planets and, and meteorites. So I've lived with the idea for a long time, but as a kid, I didn't really have trouble. The only big concept that gives me trouble is astronomy. It's the distances. I can't deal with those distances, but I'm quite comfortable talking about millions of years and billions of years. Well, that's interesting because in astronomy, the distance is also the time. So the further and further back you go, looking back into the universe, the further back in time you're going. That's true. I I can understand that the light's taking a long time to get here. If you had mentioned you had to walk it, then it just becomes impossible to, to comprehend that sort of distance. I think you'd want to take a bus, at least. <laughs> a nuclear-powered bus. <laughs> okay, well, let's get back to the timescales that you're more familiar with, and those are the timescales on this Earth and the dinosaurs. Now, you are in the business of dinosaurs. You're the curator right. of dinosaurs, and you found a fossil of a mosasaur. Now, yes. It sounds like a dinosaur, but it's not, is it? It's actually more closely related to uh, living lizards, um, especially things like the Komodo dragon, the monitor lizards. Today, they're all large predatory lizards. Um, The Komodo dragon can reach about three meters long. It's the largest predatory lizard alive today. And about 80, 85 million years ago, some of these monitor lizards decided it was a good idea to take up life in the ocean and shallow seas around the world. And they were an extremely successful group. Now, a mosasaur is a large creature, and I would like you to describe for me what this creature was like when it was alive. So somehow we went from small lizards, I assume that they were small, to this gigantic creature that was kind of a, a god of the sea. Well, they probably didn't start off too small. Most monitors are between one and two meters today. So what mosasaurs did, they eventually, they abandoned jointed limbs like typical lizards have, and they reduced their arms and legs down to these sort of flippers. And they greatly elongated their body, and the last half of their tail expanded into a broad paddle-type rudder. And their whole body became very flexible, and they would just sort of 
we call it anguilliform swimming. They would have swum like an eel. And another thing they had, which they inherited, um, they had teeth in the roof of their mouth. So, and these teeth could actually move independent of the skull. So not only were you going to be bitten by these big teeth, but you would be pulled apart inside the mouth by this extra set of teeth <laughs> in the roof. Okay, so these guys and gals were top predators, it sounds like. They were, and they could eat, they would probably tackle anything even as big as themselves. Now, mosasaurs are lizards, a form of lizard. Are they related to dinosaurs? Are lizards and dinosaurs related? Yes, if you go back far enough. The closest you could say they are is they're a group called diapsids. In addition to like their eye sockets and their nostrils, they've got an, an extra pair of openings behind the eye in the skull, and that unites them. That's one easy feature. But sometime way back in the Triassic, between about 210, 250 million years ago, the ancestors of dinosaurs and mosasaurs parted company. And so the mosasaurs, ancestors and lizardy type things, they followed their own evolutionary path and dinosaurs followed their path. The dinos were around for about 150 million years. Correct. And did they go through much evolutionary change during that period? I mean, would, would the dinos at the beginning of the dino period recognize the dinos at the end or would we see them as, as similar or, or strikingly different? The carnivorous dinosaurs that appear in the Triassic are basically the same model that people would imagine. A two, an animal that ran around on two long hind limbs with the forelimbs free with heavy claws, um, a longer neck, a long head filled with pointy teeth, and a long counterbalancing tail. So that's the theropod dinosaurs, they're all basically carnivorous. And they kept that body plan all the way right to the end. But the plant-eating dinosaurs, they really diversified, a huge different range of body forms. When they started out in the Triassic, they didn't look that much different from the theropods. But then during the Jurassic, the plant-eating dinosaurs, especially like things like the sauropods, they just went to huge body sizes and they quickly populated the Earth. And in the Cretaceous, we have a huge variety of a group called the Ornithischian dinosaurs, which gave us things like Stegosaurus and Triceratops and the duckbills, just an amazing range of body forms. And all the theropod dinosaurs did was just get bigger and bigger and bigger. That's, that's fascinating because when we talk about evolution, we often refer to all the changes. And here's an example where there were very few changes over 150 million years for these dinosaurs, the meat eaters. Um, they got bigger and bigger and bigger. But other than that, they didn't change much. And that must say something about the efficiency of their body plan. There must have been something very adaptive <laughs> that they had evolved from the get-go. Yeah, well, it's been pointed out that meat is meat. Once you've figured out how to detect it, catch it, dismember it, swallow it, digest it, um, it doesn't matter if you're eating a rabbit or a turtle or a fish. It's all the same sort of tissue to digest. So you could keep the same sort of gut, the same dentition. The only thing you would want to do is if you wanted to tackle bigger prey items, um, you'd have to evolve to become bigger yourself. If there was so much time for dino evolution, okay, some things changed, some things didn't, um, why didn't their brains evolve further? Why didn't they reach levels of human intelligence? Because mammals did in a much shorter period of time. Yeah, there's an interesting idea about that. So dinosaurs and mammals appear in the Triassic at almost the same time. And for some reason, dinosaurs grabbed the daylight niche. We're pretty sure that all dinosaurs were able to see color and had good vision and mammals seem to have been pushed into the nocturnal realm and when you're creeping around in the dark you can't use light so things like sound and smell become much more important and mammals were able to enhance that portion of their brains and I think everybody's had the sense you get a smell and it suddenly your memory flashes back to some event from a long time ago or a place that's a really ingrained sense in our brains and it's a survival thing from our ancient nocturnal ancestors. So it seems that the mammal brain was much better at processing this maybe more indirect information in form of sound and, and, and smell. And dinosaurs did fine during the daylight. Um, the world was quite stable for long periods and their, what we would think of their simple brains served them well for a very long time. So mammals were in the dark for a long time, but in the end, <laughs> that was good for us. Yeah. 
we lost the dinosaurs, and um, fortunately for us, because now you and I can have a conversation, made way for the mammals. What did we lose when we did lose these remarkable animals? Were there physical traits that we haven't seen since that were lost when the dinosaurs went extinct? I think the extreme body size. The average size of a mammal today is around 10 kilograms. You've got to remember that most mammals are either bats or rodents, and they're fairly small. Elephants and whales sort of skew the distribution a little bit, but basically the average mammal is probably about 10 kilograms, but the average dinosaur size is probably about 100 kilograms. And it's been proposed that during the Mesozoic, a lot of the continents, which today are now dispersed, uh, were clumped together. There was two major supercontinents, Gondwana in the southern hemisphere, Laurasia in the north. And it's been shown that the bigger the land area, the bigger the animals are that can live on it. And it's, some people have thought that with our smaller continents like South America, North America being separate, or like Australia, these land masses just can't support a viable population of animals weighing 20 tons. And my question actually wasn't fair entirely to birds, because birds are relatives of dinosaurs. Do you consider them living dinosaurs? Yes. Um, you can't, it's not quite correct to say that they're living relatives of dinosaurs. They are dinosaurs. It's like saying we're not related to mammals. We are mammals. Mm -hmm. um, so dinosaurs are, or birds are part of dinosaurs. And finally, let's say dinosaurs had not been wiped out by that rock. Would they have evolved further? Would they have their own space program by now? I don't think they would have. So dinosaurs were around for 160, 170 million years, and they never developed any technology. And I think they would have carried on business as usual. The biggest change would have been they would have had to have adapted to eat grass because there was no grass in the Mesozoic. So they would have stayed on Earth. They never would have made it into space or driven a car or logged onto a computer is a safe bet. Yes. Donald Henderson, thank you so much for speaking with us. Oh, you're welcome. Donald Henderson has one of the cooler titles in science, Curator of Dinosaurs at the Royal Terrell Museum in Drumheller, Alberta. Sorry to say goodbye to Donald and to the dinos, and I kind of wish those guys were still around because I'm sure we could find a way to coexist. They might even make good pets, some of them. Think you haven't changed that much over the years? Actually, who am I kidding? The mullet is timeless. Off to the barber I go. Maybe not, but your species is changing more than you think. Turns out Homo sapiens is not done evolving. It's life back then on Big Picture Science. A lot happens every day. Cut through some of the noise by listening to What's New with Wired, a podcast that provides in-depth coverage on technology and culture. With new episodes released every weekday, you can catch up on all the major events you missed. From AI developments to business updates to new scientific theories, it helps you make sense of what's happening in the world. Plus, each episode is usually pretty short. You can easily squeeze it in on your way to work or during a lunch break. So stay updated with the award-winning journalism from Wired. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. Well, so far, we've seen the extraordinary changes that take place in species during really long swaths of time. Light-sensitive spots become eyes. Small, scurrying sea creatures become, after many, many millions of years, lions, lemurs, cockroaches, hedgehogs, and every other kind of animal. And over time, these animals can refine their adaptations, as the dinos did. Practice makes perfect. And humans are occasionally described as being at the pinnacle of this process. All these animals evolving, and then... Hey, everybody, Homo sapiens is here. Let the evolutionary party end and the real party begin. Except it doesn't work that way. Let's go from the time that the asteroid hit the Earth and wiped out the dinos 65 million years ago ahead to 40 or 50,000 years ago. Which is basically present day. To make that leap, imagine walking from San Francisco to New York 
Now, if New York represents the dinosaur wipeout 65 million years ago, then going back 50,000 years is no more than walking the first two miles across the Bay Bridge into Oakland. Which gives you an idea of what part of the country we're based in. Conventional wisdom holds that Homo sapiens reached its modern form 40 or 50,000 years ago, and we haven't really changed much since then. Right, anthropologist and physicist Gregory Cochran? The evidence is against it, and it doesn't really make any sense. There's been lots of changes in the environment. The ice ages have disappeared. Farming has been invented. More complicated civilizations. All of those things change the environment people live in. You put people in a new environment, they begin to adapt to it. Well, you've gone farther than saying merely that humans have changed since uh, we first sprung up here on the planet, or or even since uh, the time of the Romans, but that, like the expanding universe, the change is accelerating. Is there any evidence for that? Well, the first thing that makes change accelerate is if your environment is changing fairly rapidly. And by the way, most of the time when we talk about how things are changing, we're mostly talking over the past few thousand years, not so much the past ten. It's easier to tell the trend over that period. We're probably changing right now, but it's hard to say in what direction. You know, it may have changed again. The direction may have changed. We know quite a bit about genetic changes that have occurred over this period. Quite a few have been discovered. But if I were to ask you for some sort of concrete evidence for this change, this evolutionary change in Homo sapiens, I mean, we don't have the college board scores or the SAT scores or whatever from people 20,000 years ago. So what would you point to? Well... Some things are fairly well known. We know that there are certain mutations that have uses that we can estimate by a couple of methods how old they are. One is by looking at the genes. You can make estimates of how old they are. And we can also check to see if skeletons before a certain time had it. We can now do that to some extent. So, for example, the most famous example is they lack taste persistence, which is the ability to continue to digest the main sugar in milk as you grow up. The default human state was that you couldn't. This stopped around age five or six or something. Today... For many people, you can continue to digest milk your whole life. The main mutation that causes this in Europeans is probably around 8,000 years old. And when they look at European skeletons from, say, 6,000 B.C., they don't have it yet. So you're finding the change in the DNA. And you just compare the DNA of today to the DNA of, of then. And you see these changes. But the change you've noted here is one that affects our physiology, but not necessarily our ability to reason, our thinking capability. Do you see any evidence for changes in our intelligence, if you will? I think it's probably happened, but it's not as understood as well. One reason is that the brain is more complicated. There are many genes involved, and there are a few of them that we understand really well what they're doing, whereas this system with making lactase is much simpler by comparison, much easier to understand. And also, insofar as there have been changes in the brain, they probably involve many, many different uh, genes changing in, in relative frequency, different forms of them, whereas... This thing with the milk is fairly simple. It's just one gene can confer the ability to digest milk. So it's easier to study because it's simpler. But, I mean, one of the reasons uh, that we think there has been changes in the human brain is that, again, any trait, there's no specialness to the traits, you put in a situation where the payoffs and the penalties are much different than they used to be, for any species, that trait's going to begin to change, and you can get noticeable change in maybe 100 generations, which would, for humans, would be like 2,500 years. And... We know that there have been changes. Cultures are more complicated than they once were. There are things that people have to handle that didn't used to exist, like money. Things have had time to change. Evolution is just a kind of passive reaction to some sort of pressure. You're right, the climate changes, the the creatures you compete with change something. What would you say is the most important evolutionary pressure changing humans? Well, it depends partly on where you are. One of the things that happened as people left Africa is they moved to places that were colder climate's been important. There was different dosages of ultraviolet, so there's been big changes in skin color. But in certain parts of the world, yet other things have been real important. In a lot of Central Africa, evidently malaria has been really important. There are many different changes that have happened that are protective against malaria there. Could we evolve faster, Greg? Could we be producing super babies, if you will, maybe with some sort of intervention technology uh, in the near future? Or is that just high-tech eugenics, something we're never going to do? Well, I don't know if we'll choose to do it, but we're certainly going to be able to do it. And in fact, I can probably describe what the simplest possible approach is. See, mutations are always, always happening. Most of them either do nothing or are bad. A significant fraction are bad. And they can be bad to different extents. They can cause something severe. They can mess you up a little bit. There's a spectrum of how much trouble they can have. And the smaller 
the trouble they cause, the longer it takes to get rid of them. So at any given moment, there are a number of things that aren't quite right in your genome. You know, think of it as noise or, or bugs. Now, assuming that we can edit the genome, which we should be able to do eventually, you could imagine simply fixing all of these. You know, each of these is something that most people already have working. So it's not like you're doing anything really new. Now, would this person have any special new abilities? I don't think so, but they'd have a very efficient running version of all the standard human abilities. Greg Cochran, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you. Gregory Cochran is a physicist and anthropologist at the University of Utah. Okay, well, Greg has brought us to present-day evolution, meaning over the last few thousand years. But the story doesn't end there. Today, scientists study evolutionary change that's happening right under your nose if you happen to be eating a banana. Drosophila, better known as the fruit fly, doesn't require deep time to evolve. And that, plus the fact that it also doesn't insist on a consent form, makes it a great subject for research, says biologist and fruit fly wrangler Todd Schlenke. The average lifespan of the lab fruit fly, Drosophila melanogaster, is about two weeks. Uh, you can grow them in the lab if you treat them really well for, you know, 30, 40 days. But in general, it's about two weeks. Uh, that doesn't sound very long. Uh, wh- what can they do with their lives in, in that short period of time? I mean, sounds like there's a little more you could do other than have a few meals and reproduce. <laughs> that's, that's pretty much it. They have to find a mate, and, and then the female has to find a place to lay her eggs and the cycle begins over again. So they're kind of reproduction machines. They're self-reproducing bits of uh, organic material. doesn't sound like they have a great life. <laughs> well, I mean, that's, that's kind of how I think of all organisms. <laughs> they, they're as, as reproduction machines. <laughs> I mean, that's really what they've been selected for, is to make sure that their genes get passed on to the next generation. Okay, well, that's the life of a fruit fly, but nonetheless, they seem to be among the most popular species for laboratory studies. Now, now, why is that? Uh, well, there's a lot of benefits to using fruit flies in research. One of them is that it's very easy to grow them in the lab. They have a defined diet, which is basically just baker's yeast with some sugar added. They can live in little plastic vials. They're, they're small, so you can keep thousands and thousands of strains in a small room. Their life cycle is pretty short, and... There's just been lots of genetic tools developed for them over the last century. You know, the hope is that what you figure out in the flies will have relevance for other organisms like humans. Well, what kind of experiments are done with fruit flies? Well, <laughs> pretty much anything. I mean, I, I work in, in particular with the immune system of the flies. It's been found in the past that fly immune systems have similarities with the immune systems of other animals, including humans. And so you can work out how the immune system works in this relatively simple organism, the fruit fly, and then use that to better understand how a more complex immune system like our own would work. Now, what about simply studying evolutionary processes themselves? You've you've talked about genetic studies. For those kinds of experiments, I would imagine that any sort of critter that reproduces quickly would be beneficial because you can go through a lot of generations. But on the other hand, it does depend on how much change there is per generation. Do the fruit flies, you know, change a lot from one generation to the next? Uh, well, it isn't really individual fruit flies that are evolving. It's, it's really populations of fruit flies that are evolving. So for any gene in the genome, there can be multiple alleles or multiple mutants that exist in a population at any one time. And if one of those alleles is beneficial for some reason, then organisms, the individuals that possess that allele, will tend to have more offspring. And that allele will increase in frequency in the population over time, over generations of time. So you've essentially bred some sort of trait that's desirable in whatever environment these lab fruit flies are living in over the course of, uh, I don't know, how many generations are typical? It often only takes a handful of generations in order to see a response. For example, if you catch a bunch of flies out in nature so that you have lots of genetic variation and you expose them to some selection pressure, like let's say how well they fight off bacteria, over maybe just 10 generations, you will see that your population of flies that you're growing in the lab will be significantly more resistant to the bacteria than they were when they started. You've done that in 10 generations, and 10 generations is... Uh, what is that? That's less than six months. Yeah, so it's something like three or four months of breeding these flies and exposing them to a selection pressure. You, you get pretty robust evolutionary responses. 
in these genetic studies of fruit flies, of course, it's important to look at the DNA of the fruit fly. How do you get the DNA sample from a fruit fly? Because I don't know that you swab their cheeks. (laughs) Well, usually what we do is we just take a whole fly or several whole flies and grind them up with a little mortar and pestle. And, you know, there's various protocols for extracting the DNA from all of the other cellular debris that's in the tube with them. (laughs) Now, fruit flies have been around for how long, Todd? I mean, how, how far back do fruit flies go? That's a hard question to answer. I don't, I don't think I know offhand. The, the lab fruit fly, Drosophila melanogaster, diverged from its closest relative somewhere around three to four million years. So something kind of similar to how long we diverged from chimpanzees. Okay, so fruit flies in their present fruit fly form have been around for millions of years, and, yep. you, and you get, you know, at least uh, 10 or 15 generations per year. So that's tens of millions of generations of fruit fly. Yep. So, so to me, that says that when I look at a fruit fly today that I caught outside the building here, if I could find one, that that's got to be a really good fruit fly. It's got to be a really great machine. It's got to be really very sophisticated because it's gone through all these generations of improvement. That's true. I mean, all organisms, they are the success stories. The organisms that you see alive outdoors today, those are the ones that are really well tailored to their environments and whose ancestors were really successful at reproducing. Well, Todd Schlenke, thank you so much for talking with us. Okay, thank you. Todd Schlenke is a biologist at Emory University. Well, that really brings us to the long and the short of evolution. The fruit flies are on the short end because they can change over very short periods of time. I mean, periods of time that we can witness. Yes, but I think that that's an important point. Look at how much they can change over the course of, you know, a couple of years of experiment. And yet, with deep time, with hundreds of millions of years, well, maybe it's not surprising. You can go from, you know, those animals of the Cambrian to what you see today. So it sounds like deep time can make deep changes, profound changes. It can, and it did. And that's it for our program. Thanks to our production staff, Gary Niederhoff, Barbara Vance, and Jay Weiler. Also support from Rena Sholsky-David and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute. And a big thanks also to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to life back then. You can find more Big Picture Science on iTunes and through the link on our website. And while you're online, why not go to Facebook and become a fan of the program? You can leave your comments there as well. If you're a podcast listener but prefer over-the-air radio because you enjoy electromagnetic radiation, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. As we say, each week we present science stories that matter. Want to support the show but are too busy surfing the net and shopping for shoes online? We've got the fix. Go to BigPictureScience.org's support page and download the Good Search toolbar. It takes less than a minute. The radio show will get a penny for every search and even more when you make purchases from the Good Shop. Make Big Picture Science your charity of choice and support us without any cost to you. Good Search and Big Picture Science. Searching that makes a difference. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science, everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts.